the impact on a community in Ohio is really special. It's, it's pretty rare that you get to come back to a place where you were born and raised and really help a community that, that frankly was aging and declining uh, grow. And I think, you know, we're having an economic impact on our community already and we're keeping great talent in the community and we're employing younger talent right out of college in gaming and in media that, that maybe would not have occurred had we not existed. Let's discover what people are building in the greater Cleveland community. We are telling the stories of Northeast Ohio's entrepreneurs, builders, and those supporting them. Welcome to the Lay of the Land podcast, where we are exploring what people are building in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio. I am your host, Jeffrey Stern, and today I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Michael Crawford. A native of Ohio, Michael is the chairman of the board, president, and CEO of the Hall of Fame Resort and Entertainment Company, which he joined back in December of 2018. The Hall of Fame Resort and Entertainment Company is a publicly traded organization trading as HOFV on the NASDAQ and headquartered here in Canton, Ohio. Spanning media, gaming, entertainment, resorts, and sports, the company is dedicated to making legendary moments for fans and leverages the power and popularity of the Hall of Fame Village, the 100-acre immersive destination centered around the Pro Football Hall of Fame and one of the largest commercial development projects in Ohio, with assets worth over $250 million. Before his role at the Hall of Fame Resort and Entertainment Company, Michael spent four years with the Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts Company, where he served as the global president of portfolio management. And prior to that, Michael had a nearly 25-year tenure at the Walt Disney Company, where he rose to senior vice president and general manager of Shanghai Disney Resort, as well as president of Shanghai's Walt Disney Holdings Company. From 2007 to 2014, he led the negotiation and multi-billion dollar development of Shanghai Disney Resort. Additionally, Michael currently serves on the board of directors for Texas Roadhouse, the multi-billion dollar steakhouse chain. Michael also recently authored From the Mouse's House to the Penthouse, a book which we will reference throughout our conversation today, where he recounts personal stories, lessons, and techniques from his career. This really was an amazing conversation with tons of insightful takeaways that I very much enjoyed, and I hope you will all enjoy it as well after a brief message from our sponsors. Lay of the Land is brought to you by Impact Architects and by 90. As we share the stories of entrepreneurs building incredible organizations in Cleveland and throughout Northeast Ohio, Impact Architects has helped hundreds of those leaders, many of whom we have heard from as guests on this very podcast, realize their own visions and build these great organizations. I believe in Impact Architects and the people behind it so much that I have actually joined them personally in their mission to help leaders gain focus, align together, and thrive by doing what they love. If you two are trying to build great, Impact Architects is offering to sit down with you for a free consultation or provide a free trial through 90, the software platform that helps teams build great companies. If you're interested in learning more about partnering with Impact Architects or by leveraging 90 to power your own business, please go to ia.layoftheland.fm. The link will also be in our show notes.
So you recently wrote a book that documents your journey aptly titled uh, From the Mouse's House to the Penthouse, kind of capturing you know, the professional journey you've been on over you know, nearly 25 years at Disney to, to Four Seasons, all before your uh, current role today, which, which we'll get to. But to start, I'll, I'll say that I, I really appreciated your reflections on this journey that you've been on. You know, th- thinking about our audience here who are entrepreneurially minded and sitting at this intersection of people who care about business uh, and leadership and Northeast Ohio, <laughs> I think that they will also really appreciate your, your story and learnings, many of which apply to a lot more than, than business, thinking about treating people with respect, how to communicate, how to empathize and understand bridging cultures and the, the Midwestern ethos. And so I'm excited to uh, unpack some of these with you today. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Well, I would say it's an interesting collection of experiences I've had, but but sort of wrapped with very simple ideas and leadership premises that I think we sometimes forget. And, you know, even myself, I'll go back to books that I've read over the years and just remind myself of how important it is to uh, communicate with people, how important it is to understand that you're building relationships for the long term, not for, you know, uh, the time you're sitting in front of somebody. So it was it was interesting putting that collection of experiences and then sort of trying to tie a coherent theme of, of leadership and lessons learned along the way. Yeah. So so help us set the stage here and maybe, you know, through the the lens of from the mouse's house to the penthouse, kind of, you know, paint a picture of the the arc of your career as you experience it. Well, I was I was one of these guys that was probably as immature of an undergrad as you're ever going to find. <laughs> and I went to Bowling Green State University, really loved the university in my time there. But I wasn't prepared to sort of think about a long term career. I, you know, when people would ask me in college, what are you going to do? It was business. Right. And that's that's the extent of my knowledge of where I wanted to go and what I wanted to be. So I had a good friend of mine who called me from Florida. He was working in Orlando for Walt Walt Disney World. And he said, look, you know, I know you're planning on going back to graduate school, but why don't you take some time? Come down here. Let's have a little fun over the summer. And I did. And so I went down and I joined the Disney company as an hourly cast member. I was somebody wearing, I always say, a polyester costume because at the time they were made of polyester. (laughs) Uh, I think they've gotten much more sophisticated now around the the types of clothing that they wear. But it was it was a really uh, fun experience. And it it allowed me to see a company like the Disney Company from the ground up. And from there, I decided I really enjoyed working there and for the company, what it was about, leisure tourism, uh, making people happy, the product you know, was fantastic. The leadership was fantastic. And as I was getting ready to go back uh, to get my graduate degree, I had a a good friend who ultimately ended up being a good friend, was my leader at the time, say, you really ought to think about staying. This is a great company. It's expanding. And uh, that conversation took about 30 seconds for me to connect going back to Bowling Green, Ohio, where it was going to be really cold for a lot of months and gray to staying in Orlando and doing some pretty cool stuff. From there, I was just given so many opportunities. I think I had seven jobs in my first five years working at Disney. Wow. And the, the great thing about the company, you don't have to you know, change companies. You can have a lot of different experiences. So I, I was sort of groomed to become a generalist. And I grew up through the organization, uh, finance, operations, theme parks, hotels, et cetera. 
And then I, I just was given these opportunities along the way to uh, sort of build up a new toolkit of, of uh, knowledge, you know, and I participated on deals that they were doing and I participated in building new properties. So really sort of, as I look back on my career, was given a lot of opportunities, but I was sort of lucky in terms of timing and people who took an interest in me to help groom me to grow along the way. And so when you think about where you are today uh, at, at the Hall of Fame Resort, an entertainment company, and you know, kind of reflecting on your experience between then and now, you know, not not that we have to recount the entirety of it, but when you think back on it, you know, what are, what are some of the the moments of of significance that you think helped shape your career along the way? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I think the the reality of being a you know an employer, a cast member that was on the front lines allowed me to experience and see things as a guest would see it. And, you know, as I'm building a company with a great team, I'm always talking about you have to build excellence and you have to create these experiences in a way where guests will really enjoy them. I mean, it's there is a sea of opportunities out there today for people who want to go and spend their time and money on leisure tourism. And so, you know, I think the things that have really helped me were connecting those the grassroots experience to what I'm doing, uh, building new destinations, opening new hotels with four seasons in different markets, and really understanding that, you know, when you're taking up residency in a place or you're extending a brand into a new business vertical, you have to be thoughtful about the steps that you take. And you also have to consider, you know, the long-term success not just what's in front of you today. And, and as a public company um, at the Hall of Fame Resort and Entertainment Company, you, you can be lulled into this, hey, we got to achieve results quarter after quarter. And that doesn't line up with building things sometimes. Sometimes you have to sort of push that aside. You got to pay attention to it. Your shareholders want you to pay attention to it, of course. But you also have to see the longer term. And I think my career and some of the things I've done both internationally and domestically have allowed me to kind of have those experiences to pull from and draw from. So in preparing for our conversation today, one of the fun facts I learned that I I genuinely had no idea about prior was that I think it was in 1920, about 10 football teams gathered in Canton, Ohio to create the, uh, at the time, the American Professional Football Association, which I think we all now ultimately colloquially refer to as the NFL. And so there's this rich history of the region that shares the, you know, spirit of the the work that you're doing now in a lot of ways. And, and I love if you could share a little bit more about, you know, that history and what it looked like and kind of the origins and, and founding of the Hall of Fame Resort and Entertainment Company, as well as, you know, just high level what it is and and, and what the company does today. Sure. Well, the, the, you said it perfectly. I mean, I get asked a lot, or I used to, not as much anymore. Why are you building stuff in Canton, Ohio? Why, you know, <laughs> the weather there is okay some of the year and sometimes not so much. But you have to go back to the foundation, which is this is the birthplace of professional football. And, you know, those gentlemen coming together, and you, you got to remember at the time, the East Coast was really where this country was born out of, right? I mean, immigrants came into New York and started to move west over time. But a lot of the foundation was built in the east and the northeast specifically. And so we thought that, you know, 
building something around the brand of professional football and creating experiences that are so deeply tied to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, the NFL, et cetera, would make a lot of sense. It would make a lot of sense from a business point of view, for sure. But from an experience point of view, nothing else like it in the world. And by far, professional football is the most popular sport in America, which is interesting to me. You know, I grew up playing basketball and baseball and, of course, loved football. But, you know, when you look at the statistics now, the viewership, the revenue, the the fan base, I mean, you can take the next three professional sports, add them all up together, and it still doesn't compare to what the NFL is doing now. So, you know, there was a, a discussion about this long before I came to Canton, Ohio. I was president of Four Seasons and uh, was approached by a, an executive search firm because they knew I was from Ohio and they knew I had those experiences that I've written about in the book. And they needed a leader who could come in and sort of visualize where this company could go, um, not only from a destination point of view, but how could we take this brand and the popularity of this sport and really build a company around it? And so that's what appealed to me when I was approached. I mean, you know, when you look at the scale of it right now, we truly are still a startup. And we're, you know, unfortunately, we're suffering like the rest of the world is still suffering from the global health pandemic, inflation, and all the, all the trickle-down effect from those things. But we've, we've continued to move forward. We've continued to produce great content, build great assets, create great environments. And honestly, it's what I've done in my past with a company like the Walt Disney Company or a company like Four Seasons Hotels and Resorts. These experiences are unique. And when you have great, unique intellectual property to pull from, you can, you can then appeal to a a wide range of guests. So it's been a lot of fun so far. It's been challenging. I mean, we're only, you know, we went public in July of 2020 and we're celebrating our third year anniversary here in a couple of months, but it's, it's been a rough, rough uphill grind for a while. Right. And when you think about what the, the company offers, there really is a, a breadth of services, product from physical infrastructure, programming, events, entertainment, kind of writ large, how, how would you, you know, capture the, the essence of, you know, what it is the, the company is, is, is bringing forward? I think it's what I said. You know, it's, it's taking the popularity of football and, and sport in general, but focusing on what we can have access to uh, exclusively. You know, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, millions of pieces of archives, right? Video, audio, imagery that have never really been brought to life. You can walk the Hall of Fame today, but... The, the greatest collection of assets are in the archives and not really out on display. There's just not enough room. So taking, you know, that and access to the Hall of Famers themselves, the greatest that have ever played the, the game and building content, you know, media content, gaming content, uh, creating a destination around the Hall of Fame. There, there's, you know, a couple million folks already coming to events and to the Hall of Fame and, and to celebrate enshrinement and the kickoff of the NFL season. Why not build something that really helps celebrate that in a much larger way? And so, you know, I always talk about we take content, intellectual property and create experiences from that that are unique and different for guests of all ages to enjoy. And I think we've 
we've been successful in doing that so far, even in a difficult environment, but we got a lot more to do. There's a lot of really fun stuff ahead of us. <laughs> so you, you had mentioned vision, um, and as I understand it, you assumed leadership in a somewhat liminal period for, for the company. You have some, some projects in progress, work to be done. You know, what was your experience onboarding and how did you actually set that vision where you can, you know, honor the past and the work that's already being done, but inspire this this future that you have in mind, creating a world class organization, bringing these physical assets to life, and and activating those real world spaces, just kind of innovating across the board. I, I think back to you know when you're when you're building something, you build a new Disney resort that includes a theme park, a hotel, you know, Walt's famous line is Disneyland will never be finished. And so some people look at that and it's very inspiring to think, oh, they're going to keep adding great new things over and over again. What a lot of people didn't really realize was Walt built Disneyland with the money he had and almost went broke doing it. And frankly, the the vision of it'll never be finished was something, it was a bit of a hook to keep people excited and coming back uh, for new things as they would add them. One of the things that, you know, I saw immediately when I onboarded was sort of an overzealous vision for what we needed to do all at the same time. There, there were assets here, uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. There was a, a really great stadium. There was, you know, this uh, start of a sports complex, but a lot of those weren't even finished. And frankly, uh, the, the, it was, the company was referred to as a project. The project at the time, the village, was suffering. And I think it was suffering from too broad of a vision and lack of uh, leadership that really understood how to build something from the ground up and then add to it. You know, build a strong foundation. Don't try to boil the ocean. Uh, there's not enough heat in the world to do that. And so what I did when I came in was uh, take a step back and say, what are the most important pieces that we have to put in place to really have credibility? Well, we had to finish phase one. I mean, we had to finish the stadium. Each end zone was like dirt and weeds and, you know, stuff that wasn't finished. We had to finish the sports complex, uh, swampland, old school buildings around four beautiful fields, but no infrastructure, right? There were houses all around. So there's a lot of stuff that was really left undone from what we refer to now as phase one. But then we also had to think about how do you create a destination? What do you need for people to really want to come and stay and play and enjoy? And so we pared back the vision uh, quite a bit and built phases that we could talk about. And then we, while we were pairing back the physical assets that we were creating, we were enhancing the, the virtual experiences. So gaming, adding gaming, esports, and fantasy sports. We didn't know that sports betting was going to be legalized at the time, but the, the vision that, that I always talked about was sports betting enhances the way in which you engage with sport, right? And so if it ever did become legal, we would want to have a place, you know, to, to be able to do that. And then, of course, media. And we've already put out some really unique, different media content. Um, during Super Bowl weekend, we put out one of our biggest shows called The Perfect Ten. And this was the documentary around the 10 guys who won a Heisman Trophy and also been inducted into the Hall of Fame. You know, for a company that's only been in existence for a few years, we were prime time on Fox, partner with NFL Films, and Prudential as the lead sponsor for the show, Super Bowl weekend. So it just... 
you know, what I'm, what I've been proud of is we've taken off digestible bites and we've really tried to build something that we can continue to grow and sustain over the long term. But it was, it was rough, you know, in the beginning, because I think the community was a bit cynical. Uh, the investors were certainly, I would, you know, cynical is probably a polite way of saying it, but they were upset <laughs> with the way things had been performing. And now we've sort of rewrote the story a little bit and, and gotten the ship back in the right direction. So I'll pull on the the cynicism thread a, a bit there. One of the things I was really curious to get your perspective on, you know, in the context of of being in Canon, was from from your book. You know, you can you glean that you have this plethora of experience at this point in your career, making international deals, you know, running company divisions for two of the biggest brands in in the world, and a lot of it is overcoming resistance and and doubt having worked with a lot of those local partners, even national governments, the, the Chinese Communist Party, to, to tangible success. And one of the primary themes that you explore in the book is thinking about how to bridge cultures and localizing your strategy. I'd love to hear about what it was like to take that experience to Canton, and, and what did you have to understand about this community in that localization exercise as you faced you know, resistance or you know, some, some pushback on change that you're, you're trying to enact? I think anywhere you go in the world, and it doesn't have to be all the way to mainland China, you know, you're going to experience culture and you're going to experience the way in which people are used to doing business and relationships and trust lie at the heart of all of it, in my opinion. And I've always said that, you know, coming from uh, the Midwest, Ohio specifically, and I talk about this in the book, I, I just am a, a very plain spoken guy. I, I try to be honest. I try to take uh, the fear away, if you will, of the other side of the table thinking I'm really there to outmaneuver them or out negotiate them or whatever the case may be. And it was the same in Canton. In fact, when I showed up, that had been the case. You know, the, the previous regime, I think, had had a lot of overpromise and underdeliver, and so the government had been supportive, uh, the community had been supportive, but they had sort of been brought all the way, you know, to the altar, but sort of left there. And so when I arrived, I did a lot of just, hey, let's talk. You know, what are you thinking? Where where is your head at? Because. One thing I know, when you're building something or you're creating a destination, it doesn't matter where you're doing it in the world. If you don't have the support of the government, the community, you're not going to be successful. You're just not. There are things that you have to do that require regulative, uh, re uh, regulatory support, investment support. And by the way, if the community doesn't support you, they're not coming. Right. So <laughs> right. There, there was this, uh, this skepticism that I, in the beginning, said, look, I am, you're completely fair to have that level of skepticism. I've since moved past that because I think what we've shown is that if you trust us, we'll be open and transparent. But now is the time for everybody to sort of lock arms and let's get over the past and move forward together. And so, yeah, I drew a lot upon lessons that I had with uh, Four Seasons and partners really all over the world. When I was president of Four Seasons, I was dealing with folks in Dubai, folks in, in France, folks in uh, Asia, you know, India, other places. And you really have to understand what they're trying to gain from the relationship or from the, 
the deal or from, you know, whatever it is you're doing before you can then move forward and try to align interests. And that's always, I think, key. You, you want to align interests so that over the long term, you know, each party feels like you're, you've, you've gotten something and you're going to be successful together. So can you take us through some of those stages? You know, what, what is the, with a future looking lens, how is the evolution of the company as you think about what, what comes next? I think the company continues to do a lot of what we've already been doing. You know, for a company that truthfully has only been operational for a year, if you think about going public in July of 20, from July of 20 until I'll, I'll call it sort of spring of 22, the entire world was shut down. Well, let's open. No, let's shut down. And from there it was, hey, manufacturing plants that are producing uh, electrical panels or HVAC systems or whatever, they're not even operating. And so, you know, for us, we did a whole bunch of let's batten down the hatches. Let's make sure our strategy is sound over that first year. Let's align funding. Let's, let's get the government and the community on board. And then let's really go at it uh, when we have a clear vision for what the world is going to allow us to do, meaning COVID and the supply chain issues, et cetera. I think now, you know, from I'll call it summer of last year, 2022 to today, we've really started to stand up and really started to move forward with creating the destination, creating great media, creating great gaming environments for people to enjoy. And I think the future is let's continue to build out the vision for the destination adding new experiences, new events, and things for people to enjoy over multiple days versus just coming in for a few hours to go to the Hall of Fame. We're doing that. We're adding world-class talent. We just had Kevin Hart, you know, perform this past Thursday. He was fantastic. Uh, we had a major lacrosse tournament, 10, 11,000 participants over a three-day period of time the same weekend, an e-gaming tournament, you know, in our stadium this past Sunday. So, the diversity of what we're doing now is really starting to grow. The assets are starting to grow. The content is starting to be developed. What we what we then have to do is look to see how do we take the brand and the and the access to this content and expand it in relevant spaces for guests uh, and fans to enjoy. And so, as we're continuing to build out or or fulfill what we've communicated against our our strategy today. We also have an eye towards where do we go in the future, being responsible with investment and dollars and really making sure that we become profitable as a company. That's the step that a lot of companies that are starting up tend to forget. They want to keep doing, doing more and more and more. At some point in time, you pause a little bit of the doing and say, okay, let's, let's become profitable with what we've done and then we'll continue to grow. And that's, that's sort of where we're at now. Hmm. I, I want to get back to the, the growth you know, concept overall, but I did want to ask you, when you mentioned diversity, one of the things you had mentioned in the book as well was you know, the difficulty of virtually developing relationships, uh, which I thought is you know, kind of particularly interesting of a challenge in the context of you know, the last few years and, and the proliferation of virtual experiences that have ensued. How are you thinking about you know, curating formative virtual experiences and balancing that with real world ones at this point within the company? 
Well, I think there are, there's always now going to be a place for this virtual environment, right? Whether you're doing business deals or whether you're creating um, virtual experiences for guests. I think that's the one thing that was accelerated in a very positive way uh, with COVID. That was the only way in some instances. And so you started to see virtual concerts and virtual gaming and all of this other stuff. That has to be a part of any company's strategy. But here's Here's something I'll give you as an example. We've done a lot of business deals bringing in third-party businesses, right? Third parties to help support what we're doing. We're getting ready to launch this week uh, Brew Kettle, which will be a great new experience at the Village. Top Golf, great new experience at the Village. Doing those deals virtually, I think, took a lot longer than if we were able to sit down right together and talk and Look at the look at the legal language and, and create the business connection and the trust. And so, one of the things that I'm trying to break my team of today is just continuing to go down that virtual path. I think there is an efficiency that can be gained by doing things in person. And I also think we're human beings. Trust, communication, you know, looking at someone and, and reading body language is really important even though you can do a little bit of that on a Zoom call. So there's there's a balance now that we need to strike with, uh, as a company, how we do business virtually versus what do we do in a, in a real environment, in a, a three-dimensional setting where people can actually come together and enjoy experiences. And so we're, we're evaluating on an ongoing basis, how do we balance between the two. And I think a lot of companies are this return to work policy versus stay home forever policy. You know, I'm not very popular when I say, look, for us, we're a leisure tourism company. You can't create experiences from your couch when people are coming to your destination, right? You can do that in some instances with media or gaming, but we have to balance that. And so I, I don't blame people for wanting to stay home and enjoy the comfort and be with family and, and be able to do errands while they're working, you know, in quotes. But I think there is this this rebalancing that the world is going through. Um, and we're certainly doing that as a company as well. So we can cir- circle back to the the profitability idea and also something you had mentioned earlier, which I'd summarize maybe under the the challenges of running a public company while also considering yourself a startup in some ways. So I, I'm very curious how you think about, you know, combating short-termism and maintaining commitment to the, a longer-term vision and day-to-day execution while still trying to operate and grow profitably. It's difficult in the world that we've set up, especially in the United States, I'll tell you, in places like Asia, they have a much longer term view on investment and return. Here, we've really conditioned ourselves to live quarter by quarter. And one of the things that is hard to do is tone out some of the noise, some of the rhetoric around, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? And really keep true to your strategy. What I try to do as a public company CEO is to be as transparent, again, going back to the book and talking about transparency, you do have to have trust with your shareholders and uh, those that are part of your company. And again, all you can do to the extent you can do it um, is, is talk about where you're at and be honest with people, both in the good stuff that is happening and in the challenges that you're facing. The thing that you have to count on then is, 
who are your shareholders going to be? And in this world, you do have a lot of short-term penny flipping, you know, I want to get in and out, and then I want to take my money and go to another company where I can get in and out versus, you know, a couple decades ago, you invested in a company because you believed in what they did and you trusted the leadership and you, they had a vision towards something that was going to really create a return for you as an investor. That has since changed. You're also battling now technology, you know, the, the way in which certain algorithms are run with trading cycles. And so for a smaller startup company, we have to really think about how we position ourselves and how we communicate and are transparent because I was talking about, we want the right investors in our company. Our company is not about turning a, a quick dollar today. It's about creating out of this brand and out of this intellectual property stuff that is going to continue to grow and be profitable for many decades to come like the Walt Disney company did, you know, hundred years ago. So that's the challenge that I think a lot of companies face. Then compound that with the world, right? I mean, inflation, sure. lending environments, tough, everything you can imagine, putting it in my, my Disney vernacular, it's the parade of horribles that just keeps going by. And at some point it stabilizes. And at some point I do think things turn around. Um, political turmoil is always going to be there. So I keep saying, look, we have to stop looking for excuses. The, the world has faced, you know, these kinds of wars and health dilemmas and things in the past, and we've moved forward and, and we'll face it again now. But I'll just end this sort of long diatribe by saying, <laughs> you know, what we try to do is stay true to our vision. And, you know, we know there are going to be people out there upset with the stock price or whatever the case may be. Uh, we pay attention to it, but that doesn't guide the decisions that we make. I think that, I mean, it resonates a lot, at least. I've always kind of made this distinction between, you know, purchasing a stock as a, as a trader versus becoming an owner, you know, as, as part of a company because you believe in what, what they're doing and the impact they can have. Stock is literally ownership. <laughs> it, is, it is. And it's a great point. It's a great way to think about it. And I think, you know, unfortunately, the world now with technology and, and the E-Trades and the Robinhoods and everything else, you can you know, have access to being a trader much more so than what you ever could uh, a couple of decades ago. And I also think it's, you know, the sad truth is there are a lot of people out there now through social media that have become self-professed experts at trading. And you have a lot of folks listening to people who don't really know much more than they do, but they're looking for guidance as to how to make a lot of money, you know, to become a millionaire. And so they'll take advice from places where they can get it. And, and that's being a trader versus really doing your homework and investing to become an owner in a company. Mm. Well, go, going a little deeper on this, this startup mentality, I think, and maybe it's, it was in retrospect, somewhat a consequence of this zero interest rate environment and the abundance of, of, you know, essentially free capital, but the, the, this mentality that was embodied by a lot of startups that was growth at all costs, I, like literally at, <laughs> at, at, at beyond the, the saying versus, you know, how you are thinking about capital allocation, which I don't believe is, is that is the case necessarily. Um, so you know, what are the, the principles that guide your decisions on, on running a public company, thinking about reinvesting profits versus returning capital to shareholders, 
you know, kind of a- actually practically balancing all these different pulls? When you get to a place where you have a company that is successful, you know, we're, we're still working towards that, as I've said. You, you make decisions, you hopefully, that you're balancing return to shareholders versus strategic growth for your company. And I was a part of this uh, with Disney a lot, you know, buying your own stock back versus investing in a new theme park or growing. You, you really have to be strategic about how you allocate dollars and where you're spending the, the money that you have access to. For us, it's, it's a return threshold. It's an eye towards fulfilling our strategy. Uh, it's balancing our balance sheet and making sure that, you know, we're not over levering ourselves. And, and if we do take on the debt, it's the right kind of debt. And so, you know, for the, for the time that we're in, I think we're, we're, we've been successful, but there's still work to be done on all those fronts. And most importantly, you know, convincing all of the guests that we're welcoming to the physical destination or into the media space or the the gaming environments that, you know, our product is great product that you can really have fun experiencing and that you should come and and spend your time and and allocate your hard-earned money to to support. And that's that's the biggest priority for me right now. And I think for our company, we've we've got to ensure that what we're doing is of excellent quality so that people see the value, value in investing in us as a company, but value in spending time with us. There's so many choices that people have. If you don't have something that's unique and different and of excellent quality, they're certainly not going to have the, uh, you're not going to have the opportunity to entertain. And so we, we really focus on our strategy and executing against that today. I think to your point about longer term, we want to be careful about timing of investing in new assets or new experiences, but at the same time, we want to continue to grow. So we're, we're cautious around evaluating as a company, where do we take the dollars we have access to and putting, do we put them into a new water park experience or do we put them into a new uh, gaming environment and the return thresholds and, and where guests are really focusing time and money provide us some insight to that. Expanding a little bit more on that kind of vein, what what does success look like to you, right? Like just kind of broader level, what is the impact ultimately that you you hope to have looking looking back in in retrospect here? I think first and foremost, you know, the impact on a community in Ohio is really special. It's it's pretty rare that you get to come back to a place where you were born and raised and really help a community. That, that frankly was aging and declining uh, grow. And I think, you know, we're having an economic impact on our community already, and we're keeping great talent in the community, and we're employing younger talent right out of college in gaming and in media that, that maybe would not have occurred had we not existed. So that is by far a, a great definition of success for us. The second is, you know, as I've said, creating these experiences that people just love and having, you know, the physical manifestation of a brand that is so popular around uh, the United States, but but around the world as well is is precious. You have to, you know, be careful how you're building and growing around that. And so I I take a lot of pride in what the team is doing to ensure that we have long-term success and then I would say, lastly, you know, it's return. 
you know, it's return for our shareholders, it's return for our, our team, you know, on their investment in time, investment of money. When you have a successful company, it does allow you to attract great investment. It allows you to grow and, and create more of that second leg of the stool that I talked about, the experiences. And so our focus is always going to be, you know, let's make sure we're creating moments and experiences that are excellent. From that, we'll have the impact on the community that we want and we'll have the impact for our investors and our shareholders as well. We can continue to, to grow. What, what has you most excited looking forward over the next year? And maybe a way of framing that question a little differently is how do you think about, you know, the future of entertainment and hospitality and how would you like to contribute to that? I think first and foremost, there is always going to be, we are people, right? We love to go and we like to be entertained. We like to see things that align with our interests or experience things that are really unique and different. And so the hospitality business has never suffered. Even in bad times, people will turn to a Disney or a, a Cedar Point because they want relief. You know, it's, it's hard enough sometimes to get through the day with all the challenges that you face. But you want to be entertained and you want to forget reality for a while. And that was always the, the fun other saying that, that, you know, Disney, like when you come through the tunnel, you're transported into this magical world. And, and that's, uh, I think, part of what we're trying to create. The, the, for me, as I look at the next year, I'm excited about the fact that our company is really starting to create synergies across all of our business verticals and what we're doing in one can sort of bleed into the other two. As an example, this week, you know, we're creating this e-gaming tournament at the Village Destination. People are watching it online. We have giant jumbotrons that are showing the competition. We have people coming in to the village and riding rides and, and having food and beverage. And so, you know, the special nature of what we can do is we can create our own ecosystem between our lines of business, media, gaming, and destination that really, I think, is going to be unique for our guests and our fans. And I'm starting to see that materialize more now. And I think that for the next year is going to be a great opportunity for us. Obviously, a lot of your experience prior seems to be directly, you know, transferable in a lot of ways to the work you're doing now. I am curious, what are the the aspects of both the company and your role and responsibilities that have surprised you that that feel, you know, perhaps different than than what you've experienced so far? Well, I think before when you have ownership, listen, Disney owns their intellectual property, right? Uh, Mickey, Minnie, the parks, the the movies, etc. What I'm doing more now is developing this content through others and in partnership with others. And so, you know, I'm, I'm having to draw upon the past, of course, and how we think about strategically creating these experiences. But at the same time, you're doing it with a distribution partner, you're doing it with a development partner. And so there is this, this nurturing of relationships and uh, particular partners that, are, that is going to help us create more experiences as a company that is slightly different than when you own your entire ecosystem on your own, like a Walt Disney Company does. And I think that just, it takes a little more time. You wanna make sure you have the right partnerships in place for the mid to long term. And so that's you know a big focus of ours and all three of 
our business verticals is to ensure that we can expand our capabilities through others. And so that's, that's a big focus that I think has been different and enlightening as well for our team and myself. What are the, the biggest challenges? Like what, what, what would keep you up at night as part of this endeavor? And frankly, it's the, it's the world we're living in. I, I think everybody would agree that, you know, anytime you're, you're trying to expand while the world is trying to readjust and maybe even contract, that's a, that's a really hard uh, battle to, to fight as a startup. It's exciting. I mean, I, you know, I played sports my whole life. I, I love challenges. I love, you know, the, the most difficult situations you can give me, give them to me. And I like going in and, and trying to, to extend and fix and, and build something that hasn't been done before. That was one of the things that I really liked and motivated me about the, the deal that I helped lead in Shanghai was, you know, the Disney company had been trying to do that for over 20 years and, and didn't just couldn't get it done. And we went in with a smaller team and, and over the course of a two and a half year period of time, we got it done. And so I think, you know, that's what keeps me up at night right now. You, you, it's, it's the unknown of what is the world going to give you next in terms of your hand. Um, and you got to be ready for it. And so we are cautiously optimistic that things continue to improve, but we also have to be very prepared as a company if they don't. And so, again, expanding while others are contracting is not easy to do. I want to ask a little bit about your your personal journey as well. Uh, a lot of, I think you have some, some really fascinating stories uh, from the book. You had one that I think resonated greatly and, and reminded me of, of one of my, my own personal favorite quotes, which was a, a Mark Twain one who said that travel is, is fatal to prejudice and bigotry and, and narrow-mindedness and so, something of that nature. But I, I, I wanted to just hear your your thoughts on the importance of of travel. Listen, as a as a guy from uh, Willard, Ohio, seven thousand people who knew his front yard backyard was excited when McDonald's came to town, and and even more so when they started to serve breakfast. I was I was scared to death just going to college, and then even more so to to let out on a career that took me to Florida. I'd been to Florida, you know, but I'd never lived someplace else like that. And so going to Tokyo as my first international assignment, you might as well have sent me to the moon. No, you know, other language experience. Uh, I had traveled internationally, but never had lived internationally. Japan is a very insular type of culture, uh, very proud of their, their culture and their heritage and much older than ours, by the way, in the United States. And so much more deeply rooted. I think what it has taught me, you know, are lessons that I take with me everywhere, which is, you know, we're viewed differently in the United States than what other countries are politically. We're there to help when needed, but stay out of our business. Otherwise, you know, we, we are viewed in some time, this domineering culture that likes to impose its will around the world, which isn't true. I, I believe the United States is the greatest country on the planet. I always have. It's not that we don't have our own problems and, and issues to deal with, because we do. But what it's taught me is to be respectful and understand that, you know, wherever you're at, there's a saying in Japan that, that one of my counterparts there kept saying, and the same was true in China, which is walk in our shoes. You know, 
you have to look at things from a different lens and you have to appreciate the differences that you're going to experience. We have that in our own country today. If you think about some of the political turmoil, it's around issues that have been around in the United States for years, but but haven't been welcomed in terms of talking about them, dealing with them, you know, opening up and uh, really experiencing them. And so I think culturally, when you travel uh, the globe and you have that opportunity, and I was very lucky and honored to do that, it teaches you how to appreciate and, and actually be the minority versus, you know, not be that. Right, right. I don't. I don't mean to laugh because I find that quite profound, actually. But the, it it reminded me of of uh, the story from that you told in the book, actually, which was about this concept of a, a death allotment as part of you know just the the cultural differences. I, you'd probably be better sharing that story than than I would. But that that to me was you know indicative of that of that kind of of thing. Yeah, I, I you know, and again, it goes to you're not conversant in the language you can't understand so you're doing things through interpreters and we were sitting in this big meeting with you know a couple hundred people in it and we were talking about how we were going to build and, and develop the resort uh, in Shanghai and after I had finished one of the national development folks uh, from Beijing had come up to the podium and, and was making a statement and as part of his statement he said by the way we've done the calculation and you're allowed to have 30 something deaths, people dying while building this destination resort in, in Shanghai. And I, I asked the interpreter three times to repeat what was being said, because I couldn't, I couldn't believe that somebody, you know, in a room full of other folks would say, hey, by the way, you're investing so much and there's so many people working on this, you're allowed to have so many people die. And, you know, I, I thought about that and it sounds ridiculous, okay, as an American to hear a statement like that. But it wasn't ridiculous in China. And in fact, they were uh, very focused on ensuring that we knew that and that we would not exceed that and, and that we would try to do better than that. And, you know, my, my return comment was, thank you for that. But our intention is to have nobody die. You know, we, we, safety is something we take great pride in. But it's easy for us as Americans to kind of look down on a statement like that and say, oh, my gosh, how unsophisticated, how what a lack of uh, respect for human life that that actually is. I'm not judging that. You know, I mean, from my own morals and values, of course, that sounds uh, ludicrous, to, to put it bluntly. But from their perspective, that was somebody doing their job in their culture and making sure that we understood it. And so. That was a lesson that I've I've taken with me a lot around the world that you think something is so uh, absolutely absurd until you experience different cultures and then you have to understand and appreciate where they're coming from. What did you find was the most surprising perspective you encountered held by someone in the rest of the world about America? Uh, it was the fact that Americans... Um, tend to not listen, that, that we are very vocal in terms of who we are as people. And if you think about it, and by the way, I remind my team and I've reminded other teams this a lot as well. And, and I was guilty of it until I actually lived in Japan. We're not good listeners sometimes. And we will be in meetings or in social settings. And what we're doing is we're hearing what somebody is saying to respond versus actually appreciate 
and value the content of their message. And so, gosh, I was, I was in Japan and, and someone said that to me. And I thought to myself, how many times have I done that in a meeting where I, I'm going to listen to about half of what somebody has said to actually respond in a different way, to make my point versus taking their point and building on it or, you know, uh, understanding it in a different way. And so I talk a lot about now our culture is a culture that includes three things. And one of those things is being a culture of and instead of, you know, and what I mean by that is you listen to somebody and you say, I like that. And we could also consider this instead of listening and saying, well, I just disagree or, yeah, I heard you, but, you know, I think we should do this. It's more respectful. It appreciates what people are saying. You don't have to agree with it, but it certainly is something that I think was uh, very direct and very surprising to me because I didn't, I didn't view our culture as being that way, but it was, it was explained to me in one setting and I, I've taken that with me a lot. That introduces a very meta thought process in my own head in this present moment as I think about our conversation and active listening. And um, <laughs> I, I agree. I agree with, with that sentiment. I, I think we could all, all work on our, uh, our presence in, in, in listening. I, I just have to say, you know, and look, no one's perfect, least of all myself, but I, there have been times where, you know, you're, you're, someone's talking and you just jump in and you're cutting them off in this concept of ask, you know, listening before you speak and actively listening is, is uh, something I think we can all work on in our personal lives and our professional lives. And, and it's something I continue to, to do myself. So there, there's an abundance of, of actionable learnings and, and I'll call it distilled wisdom from, from, you know, your reflections, which you package up in the book. I would like to understand what, of those are the ones that you find yourself personally referencing the most and, and why, you know, those lessons uh, in the, the frequency with which you find yourself thinking about them? You know, a lot of it has to do with what we've been talking about. I think it's, it's transparency, it's relationship building, it's, it's effective communication, you know, in all directions, not assuming that, you know, the people you're doing business with understand everything you're saying and agree with it. I mean, even in the United States, culturally, how many different cultures do we have living in the United States, right? You can go to New York, California, Florida, Texas. I mean, you can find variations of words and food and, you know, all different ways in which we should be appreciating uh, the the cultural differences and nuances. I I take all of those with me. I really do. And, And I think in the world that I'm living in today, it's, it's really important. Hospitality. You have to appreciate the differences and the diversity of your guest. Uh, and so you, you want to make sure that culturally you're being representative of, of who your guests are. I, I think there's a difference, and, and this is something that will probably get me in trouble. I think the world has gotten to be more sensitized because of the political nature of doing things versus doing them for the right reasons and, you know, valuing cultural differences for the right reasons. And so sometimes companies will do things because, well, we have to, right? Because that's, if we don't do that, then there's going to be some, you know, group that comes out and starts to say something negative about us. Sure. That's going to happen. 
And I think you, you know, you, you're mindful of those things. But how about just really appreciating the differences and the culture and the people and and what we have to do to get along as a society? I think that's important. And I don't, I'm not trying to stand on a soapbox here and preach, but that's <laughs> something that living internationally has really taught me to value more. On the, maybe on the the flip side of that coin, what what are the the lessons that are underrated or, you know, things that, that you, you wish you would have known. And maybe that could be framed as, you know, advice that, that you would offer up. You know, one of the things that I did a lot of was when I lived internationally, I wasn't afraid to just not be smart on everything. You know, I, I would be very humble. And again, I would say that's a lot of my Midwestern upbringing you know, that, that my mother and my father both taught me that, look, you know, listen, and, and learn and don't be afraid to ask what, uh, you know, the dumb question, right, that people in the room would sometimes not ask. And I, uh, I valued that. That was a lesson for me that I wish when I first went to, to Tokyo, I was, I was a little nervous and I was uh, nervous because I wanted to look like a, a subject matter expert and I wanted to be thought of as somebody who could be respected. And, and I did have my subject matter expertise. But I didn't have expertise in everything. And so as I progressed in my career, you know, I spent a lot of time with other presidents or CEOs or different companies, whether it was leisure tourism companies or not, just asking questions. And, you know, the, the fun part about it is I think people want to help you. You know, if, if their learnings can benefit you in some way, shape or form, I mentor people. I'm, I'm a adjunct professor at the University of Mount Union. I really enjoy helping people be successful and and building people up in, in, in their careers. And so that was a lesson that I sort of got along the way that I wish more in the early days I would have taken advantage of. Well, we'll bookend the, the conversation here as we as we wrap up. I want to be respectful of your time, but or and I should say rather. <laughs> I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I want to ask if there's something particularly important about the work you're doing now, you know, reflections on your journey that maybe we, we haven't touched on that, that you would like to, to share. I think we touched on it. You know, the, the work I'm doing now is, has been a lot of what I've been able to do and been lucky enough to do over the course of my career, which is to create things that impact people's lives in a positive way. And I really, I mean, I enjoy it. You know, when you see people coming to a concert or, or, you know, watching a movie that you've created or being in a gaming environment. I was, you know, it was a small thing, but the, the person who won the, the chain grab uh, e-gaming tournament we held yesterday at the village posting yeah. is so proud and so honored to be at a destination like that with, you know, professional football. And gosh, that's a, that's a really unique opportunity when you can create those memories for folks. And so, you know, I've been lucky enough to do that a lot in my career and, and domestically and in international uh, destinations. And so it's what I'm doing now. It really is. And by the way, it's not just our guests and our fans, but it's our, our team that get to have a sense of pride in what they do in a place that they work. Uh, it's our community, you know, having having an impact on our community. So it's a lot of fun being able to do that. And I, I talk a lot about that in the book and uh, the lessons in doing so have, have given me very special moments in my life, uh, special moments for my daughter. You know, uh, I dedicated the book to her. She grew up 
half of her life living internationally. And so she has a much different mindset that her daddy did when he was her age, you know, <laughs> she, the world, she's not afraid to do anything or go anywhere. And I'm, I'm incredibly proud of her because of that. But it was, it was a gift to be able to give her the, you know, those experiences and for her to have uh, those opportunities. And I think she's really grown and appreciated that. So impact on people's lives is what I would say is the biggest thing that yeah. I take away. That's, that's pretty special. I appreciate you sharing that. No, g- genuinely, I, I think the, the, the work that you're doing at the, the Hall of Fame Resort and, and Entertainment Company, it, particularly w- considering the impact economically and, and otherwise it can have, you know, regionally is, is really, you know, powerful and, and can be, I think, a beacon for an example, a reference for, for others who are, you know, building in, in the area. Uh, so it's, it's very cool to hear about, you know, the, the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you for saying that. that that's certainly our goal. So I'll, I'll ask you our uh, traditional closing question, um, which is more related maybe than uh, than it tends to be <laughs> when we have these conversations, but it, it's for uh, a hidden gem in the area. And so I, I imagine you might have a lot of these, but, but something that uh, listeners tuning in should know about uh, in the region that maybe they don't. Well, I, I will tell you, uh, Ted Swaldo and what he's created and his his son and what they've created at Gervasi, right in Canton, Ohio, the, the, they've created their own wonderful destination. I mean, it's really high quality, the experiences that you can have there. They've got villas, they've got a little hotel, they've got a spa, wonderful restaurants. The grounds sort of transport you. You know, I'll never forget my first visit there. I, I really felt like, and I, I've gone to Napa Valley and Sonoma and other wine country areas around the world. It was really like transporting me to a different place outside of Canton, Ohio. And I, I found that to be absolutely spectacular. I'm very proud of the fact that they're in the community that I'm living in and, and doing uh, great things. They have great service, great product. And so... I would say that's one that I knew nothing about and got to know Ted a little bit and, and their family and, and how they've really invested in the community and built that up over time. Uh, great, great experience there. Highly recommend. That's fantastic. We'll definitely have to check that out. <laughs> uh, well, my God, I just want to thank you again for, for taking the time, for coming on, uh, sharing your story. It's, uh, it's one that I think will, will resonate a lot, and I, I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you taking having me on as a guest and taking the time as well. And I, I hope it does. As I said, I really like inspiring people to do great things and great things for their communities and, and to impact people's lives. So appreciate what you're doing as well. Absolutely. If folks had anything that they wanted to follow up with you about, what would be the, uh, the best way for them to do so? Uh, any of our channels, you know, I have my own social media channels on LinkedIn and, and Twitter, our uh, Hall of Fame Village, uh, com. There's a way in which they can connect with me there, Hall of Fame Resort and Entertainment Company.com as well. And we have, you know, we do try to be responsive. That's one great thing as a small company. You know, we, we monitor those, those channels and really try to respond to thoughts or ideas that people might have. Excellent. Well, thank you again. Thank you. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show. So if you have any feedback, please send over an email to jeffrey at layoftheland.fm or find us on Twitter at podlayoftheland or at sternhefe, J-E-F-E. 
If you or someone you know would make a good guest for our show, please reach out as well and let us know. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or on your preferred podcast player. Your support goes a long way to help us spread the word and continue to bring the Cleveland founders and builders we love having on the show. We'll be back here next week at the same time to map more of the land. The Lay of the Land podcast was developed in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, unless otherwise indicated, we do not own equity or other financial interests in the company which appear on the show. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.